Johnson, and you're listening to The Rights Pod, a podcast by the Center for Human Rights and International Justice at Stanford University. In this first part of a two-episode series, I sat down with the accomplished Nicole Baran on June 2nd to discuss the effects COVID-19 has had on women populations. We will be discussing questions such as, how have the jobs of women been affected during coronavirus? How does intersectionality fit into discussion of the virus? Is gender-based violence increasing? For these questions and more, you're listening to The Rights Pod. This conversation was recorded on June 2nd. Before getting into the thick of it all, Nicole would like to share a quote about what is happening during the pandemic. Alicia Garza, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter, wrote a powerful statement about the disenfranchisement of women and gender nonconforming people. And I think this really highlights what is happening to women during COVID right now. She wrote, what's happening in low-income communities, often what we find is Black women, women of color, immigrant women who are concentrated in poverty, who are impacted by environmental racism and housing discrimination. It's Black women. She says, In our communities, Black women are overwhelmingly the breadwinners, and yet our neighborhoods lack the support to help Black women who are heading families to thrive. All of this is exacerbated right now with COVID. Nicole Perron is the founding executive director of the Peggy and Jack Baskin Foundation, an organization focused on eliminating obstacles facing marginalized populations in order to reach gender and racial equity. She is also the founder and executive director of the nonprofit, the Center for Relationship Abuse Awareness and Action. Nicole holds a bachelor's and master's in English from Stanford and a master's in social work. And she lectured in the feminist gender and sexuality department at Stanford for 13 years. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you. On a grand scale, how is COVID-19 affecting women economically? Are they losing jobs? Are working conditions getting worse? What are we seeing with this pandemic? Women, femmes, and gender expansive individuals are definitely disproportionately negatively impacted by COVID. And women of color and immigrant undocumented women are particularly impacted. And basically the inequities occurring throughout COVID are amplifying and exacerbating inequities that have always been problems. Many of the occupations that I'm gonna talk about shortly that women have are low paid and often fail to provide access to critical support like paid leave or childcare and employer-sponsored health insurance and lost earnings due to the gender wage gap are exacerbating the effects of COVID-19 for many women and women of color in these jobs and for the families who depend on their incomes. As a reminder, the national gender wage gap is black women are making 62 cents to the dollar Latinx women are making 54 cents, indigenous women are making 57 cents, and Asian and white women are making 76 to 79 cents to the dollar. And on top of this, women, and especially women of color, are more likely than men to live in poverty, placing them at increased risk of food insecurity. And there's also an impact on women in different age groups. For women over 55, the unemployment rate increased 3.3% in April from a month earlier, And at 62 and older, they're 50% less likely to be rehired. As far as the conditions, women are definitely on the front lines of COVID, whether as first responders and people providing essential services like childcare and healthcare and grocery stores, as well as being overrepresented in fields 
that are shedding jobs as a result of the public crisis, like restaurants and retail and hotels. So we have 88% of registered nurses, 93% of childcare workers, and 70% of restaurant workers who are women. And many of the workers in those jobs are women of color who comprise 77% of household and domestic workers. In all of these frontline essential roles, particularly nurses, women are being impacted by the shortage of personal protective equipment, putting them even higher risk of exposure and therefore higher risk to their families who may be, have more vulnerable populations at home. So yes, women are definitely working in unsafe conditions as a result, and the lack of leadership in this area really depends on where you live and which county, which state you live, and how seriously people are taking this issue. How are women being affected by the reopening of the country? So as states begin to reopen, women who have lost income and who make up a majority of the hardest hit industries face a very scary decision between possibly exposing themselves and their families in order to work or losing unemployment by turning down jobs to protect their families. And we also know that the consequence of reopening businesses and reopening the economy will fall disproportionately on the shoulders of black people and other marginalized groups who are dying at greater rates from COVID. In addition, when we talk about reopening, there are two major issues that are affecting women. One is the need for childcare, which is essential for many women to return to work. And two is the economic security of women who are in the childcare workforce. So we have 41% of mothers who are the sole or primary breadwinners in their families. And this is exacerbated for single mothers because 47% of black children, 36% of Hispanic children, and 24% of white children are living with a solo mom who depend on childcare to be able to re-enter the workforce or access education. And without childcare, women are going to be the ones who have to take on caregiving and will be unable to return to work or school, and hundreds of thousands of women in minority-owned businesses will close their doors. All of this is highlighting existing inequities. Prior to the pandemic, there already was worry over the fragile infrastructure of the childcare system. But the closure of childcare businesses will definitely disproportionately affect the incomes of women of color who comprise 44% of that workforce. All these issues are also compounded for immigrant women and undocumented women who don't have access to the very, very limited resources that are available. And the White House is using COVID to threaten undocumented immigrants and people seeking asylum here in the US. And then women and girls with disabilities are more likely to have unmet needs for healthcare, less likely to be employed and less likely to have access to the internet. To just make it even more grim, <laughs> reproductive rights have been rolled back during this time and many states are trying to take advantage of COVID-19 to pass legislation, sort of those stay-at-home orders, to pass legislation to restrict reproductive rights and access to abortion. And as we know, reproductive rights and justice impacts economic justice, environmental justice, social justice, racial justice, and much more. A lot of what you're saying has to do with the idea of intersectionality. And I was hoping you can give our listeners who don't know much about it a quick explanation of what it is and how it pertains to coronavirus. Intersectionality is coming up a lot, and one of the things I want to say about it to start is just that many people are using the word but not actually implementing it in their advocacy and their work. And people need to be really conscious and not pay lip service to the concept of racial and gender equity 
and, and actually implement intersectionality intentionally and follow the lead of women and girls of color. But intersectionality as a concept was discussed even earlier than the Kambahi River Collective, which brought attention to the interlocking systems of oppression in 1974. The term was really publicly coined and became popular with Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989. And intersectionality is a tool for analysis, advocacy, and policy development that addresses multiple discriminations and helps us understand how different sets of identities, such as gender and race, impact access to rights and opportunities and how those intersections contribute to unique experiences of oppression and privilege. Before we started the interview, you were telling me about a specific example of intersectionality in a Kimberly Crenshaw case, and I think it may help our listeners understand the concept better. Could you talk about that a little? One case that Kimberly Crenshaw always talks about that I really do think is a great illustration of how important the need for intersectionality is a case in 1976 called De Graff and Reed versus General Motors. And this is a situation where five African-American women sued General Motors for discrimination against Black women. And what General Motors said was, no, we don't discriminate against women because look, we have white women as secretaries. And no, we don't discriminate against Black people because look, we have Black men working in our factories. But as Kimberly Crenshaw makes clear, while they were discriminating against black women, there was no category for discrimination to view this particular case. With all of this in mind, how can we look at COVID-19 through a lens of intersectionality and what do we see when we do? Yeah, so due to a history of exploitation and modern structures of racism and discrimination, Black people have been disproportionately affected by this virus. And this can be partly attributed to health and social inequalities that have been present for decades, which include things like lower access to healthcare, insurance, or overrepresentation in essential work, and bias amongst healthcare providers, and higher rates of pre existing conditions, which is based on structural violence and systemic racism. In addition, there's evidence that many indigenous and Latinx communities have greater infection rates compared to the general U.S. population. And Asian Americans are experiencing an increase in hate crimes due to racist beliefs surrounding coronavirus. A specific example of how intersectionality applies to this pandemic that I think is really powerful is a quote by a woman named A. Rashawn Meadows Fernandez. She wrote, when unmasked, we black mothers fear our loved ones will suffer from the risks associated with complications from the disease. When masked, we fear the risks associated with the complications of bias and racism. And obviously we are seeing that more than ever right now in discussions finally being highlighted in a way that they have not been enough previously. As it relates to intersectionality, COVID-19 will be used to increase voter suppression efforts, which are inherently racist and have been widespread already by refusing to allow for widespread vote by mail. And the reality of implementing a vote by mail system is inherently complicated, which is definitely going to make voter suppression even more present. So this has repercussions going into the political sector that we haven't even touched upon and won't have time to. I was hoping you could give us a little bit of information on the idea of a second shift and how we see that rising again with COVID-19. 
Yes, so the second shift refers to the labor performed at home in addition to the paid work performed in the formal sector. So women still take care of most of the household and childcare responsibilities despite working. So women definitely are being thrown back into this time where they're having to make these major decisions about full-time mothering and teaching their children in addition to working, which will compromise promotions and efforts to re-enter the workforce and also perceived performance in their work setting. And then women who are not able to work from home and are without childcare are having to decide whether to give up work or putting their kids in an unsafe position for childcare, particularly if there are vulnerable populations at home. And then this is worse for families who don't have access to internet and other tools for education. So on top of all of the different barriers women are facing right now, to work on top of it is just simply having a family. Exactly. I think that there's, again, highlighting cracks that already existed. So we can talk about it being a throwback to the 50s, but we can also just say a throwback to 2000, right, and on. It yeah. still just is the situation that many women are doing tasks that are not paid for and not considered worthy of income. And it is definitely contributing to inequality in our uh, system and, and is very much highlighted right now. Moving on from some of the economic effects of COVID-19 and onto your field of study specifically, what changes have we seen with violence against women during coronavirus, Nicole? So I wanna comment on the importance of framing gender-based violence differently. I do believe in addressing it as men's violence against women and gender expansive individuals and as violence occurring in LGBTQIA plus relationships in order to make sure that we don't inadvertently use the passive voice, which tends to contribute to a lack of accountability and a lack of emphasis on changing the culture of toxic masculinity that has led to the widespread practice of treating women as objects and abusing them. And I think that as this topic continues to be highlighted in the news, I think it's really important for us to be very intentional about language so that we can avoid perpetuating any myths or practices that are detrimental to the cause. So there will be and is an increase in relationship abuse calls right now, but it's not caused by COVID-19. And I wanna be clear that it's also not caused by the economic downturn, just like it's not caused by an increase in consumption of alcohol. These are all myths that we wanna avoid and highlight it's ultimately still a choice that someone is choosing to harm that person is making that choice and what's being used as an excuse is changing and now it's COVID-19 we also know that increase in reports does not necessarily mean that there's more abuse but just rather more reports and conversely a decrease in reports does not mean less DV but just fewer reports there's definitely been an increase in domestic violence calls both worldwide and nationwide, between 27% to 54%. And we're seeing an increase in homicides. In Milwaukee, for example, 23 domestic violence homicides compared to four during the same time period last year were reported. And Cincinnati police reported in April that since the start of the COVID-19 outbreak, homicides have increased 270%. And that's just a couple of examples. This is happening across the country. At the same time, we're also seeing a decrease in reporting in some cities, 
which is a sign that there is less access to resources and a decrease in screening in medical healthcare settings. I know you said that COVID-19, among other common reasons for an increase in domestic violence and violence against women, is not a cause, but have you seen COVID-19 change any of the tactics used by people who choose to abuse women? Definitely. A new tactic is threatening to expose a survivor to COVID-19, which can manifest as threats to lock them out of the house or by saying, if you don't do this, I'm going to expose you or threatening to harm family members, such as threatening to expose the survivor's parents to COVID and that kind of thing. And on the flip side, another tactic right now is to blame the survivor for possibly contracting COVID, whether a survivor you know, wants to leave the house or the abuser guilt tripping a survivor and accusing them of trying to infect them of, of contracting COVID-19. But really the biggest impact of COVID-19 is on one of the main ways that an abuser maintains power and control over a survivor, which is through isolation. And this usually takes more effort. So it's you know turning a survivor against family and friends and, and cutting off safety access points as a result. But as a tool now, it's much easier to isolate survivors during COVID because of stay-at-home orders. Obviously, this is important. It's preventing people from dying. It's important from, from getting sick. But it also is replicating the exact control strategy that the abuser is using, telling her what to do, where she can, and who she can see. And now it's just seen as justified, and the abuser is using that. Also, there's much more opportunity for abusive people to harm survivors who were otherwise separated during the workday and are now isolated together. One of the other major issues is that COVID-19 has compromised support systems. So people who are trying to obtain legal support or creating safety plans, and safety plans are really implemented through connection to others. But all of a sudden, now you might have a safety plan that includes having someone pick a survivor up, and that can't be done now. Or going to a friend's house the abuser doesn't know about, but not wanting to do that because of respecting someone's need for physical distance. Again, all of this is intensified for women with disabilities who are already in a position where it is difficult to seek safety from an abuser who's often the caregiver and where resources are less available because of lack of accessible DV shelters. For immigrant and undocumented women, it's always been harder to obtain safety, and now it's even more so because particularly for women who are fleeing from other countries because of domestic violence, because of the closures of the border and mothers being separated from their children at the border. Finally, the lack of access to DV services is an issue. We have a lot of abusers monitoring survivors' devices and communications, including WhatsApp and Facebook, or staying in the room while they're on the phone. So they're not able to access some of those services and flesh out safety plans with people because they can't go in person anymore to seek those services. One last thing is I want to open the floor for you. Do you have any last final thoughts? I mean, I think one thing that has been discussed, because all this is very grim, this conversation of the impact of, of COVID on women and leadership, we have seen that nations where women are leading, they have done a better job. And so when we look for ways to increase our civic engagement and contribute to efforts for all of these issues, including addressing oppression and discrimination, it's really important to listen and follow the leadership of women and girls of color because they are the ones who are fighting and organizing on the front lines every day. And we have seen that leadership leads to change. So we just really have to 
listen and follow and, and amplify their voices. Thank you so much again to Nicole and Lauren for this illuminating conversation about how COVID-19 is affecting women. For more resources on how women are being affected by the pandemic, you can check out the links in our show's show notes. To keep human rights close to your home, subscribe to The Rights Pod wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Rights Pod. The views reflected in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Stanford Center for Human Rights.